For May 18th, 2020, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 620. Why don't you put the bloodhound in a little Sherlock Holmes hat? It's Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like a pack of wild dogs who let the dogs out. Woof, 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 woof. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody did. We're quarantined. It's true. The dogs remain in. <laughs> and uh, we are never happier than when we are getting together virtually. We were, we were working remotely before it was cool and then uncool. Again. Hey, I'm Matt Rather. Here are my dogs, Pete Fenzel. Pete, woof. Well, woof, woof, Matthew. <laughs> and Mark Lee. Mark, woof, woof. Slobber, 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 slobber. Pete, Mark and I are dog owners. Do, do, have you ever uh, had a dog, family dog, or is it just I, not something that's been part of your life? I have not had a family dog because there's a lot of uh, pet allergies that run in my family. Sure. I have a cat allergy, but not a dog allergy. But my other family members have had dog allergies historically. So we'd not have dogs growing up. But now a bunch of my family members have their own dogs. Have their own dog. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In in houses that are safe for the humans and, and for the dogs. Well, you know... Um, the weekend, just before the weekend, as we started uh, going in to record this podcast, we got the news that uh, beloved comic actor Fred Willard had died, and he uh, he actually, uh, had, you know, it was uh, he had a long and great career. Like honestly, it's it's hard to imagine he could have delighted us. You know, it, it's it's hard to imagine any deficit in the delight that he that he brought to us, and he had a, a sort of long and and productive life. So, though I'm sad to see him go, um, I'm you know I'm happy that uh, we got him for as long as we we had him. And uh, it just so happens that this is also the 20th anniversary of a memorable Fred Willard role in a little film called Best in Show, directed by Christopher Guest, which released in the year 2000. So um, we thought, hey, let's, uh, in, in keeping with our current quarantine methodology of kind of going back into the anthology and, and watching things, you know, that are uh, watching things that are like really interesting or really good. Let's watch this uh, great actor in this great movie. Um, and so I, uh, I turned on Best in Show, remembering Fred Willard as being one of the best things about it. And I was all set for 90 minutes of Fred Willard beginning to end nonstop. <laughs> Fred Willard. And he comes in in about the last 20 minutes of the movie, but uh, but runs away. No, it's, it. it's more it's more than that, but he's only in it sporadically. <laughs> he's uh, when they get to the show, the third act of the movie, he's uh, he is the sort of narrator. Um, of. So if you're not familiar with Best in Show, Best in Show is a satirical film about the dog show business, about the people who like dogs uh, and show them in these shows, not not like agility competitions where the dogs do tricks or obedience competitions or anything, just uh, the dog's conformation to the ideal of the dog. Um, 
you know, and that uh, that uh, the dogs are judged, and one is is named best in show, and so it it follows a, a bunch of dog owners or handlers in the lead up to the uh, to the big um, fictitious dog show, which is called like the Mayflower Dog Show or, or something like that, which takes place in in Philadelphia. Directed by Christopher Guest, written by Eugene Levy and, and Christopher Guest, uh, who is you know n- notable for doing this is Spinal Tap, Waiting for Guffman, and a whole bunch of uh, a a mighty wind um, a whole bunch of kind of semi-improvised I mean I think they work from an outline or some ideas but largely with with great improv actors uh, comedians and uh, known for for doing this type of kind of loosely structured um, improvised film Uh, I don't know did I did I do it justice guys in in the and and also it's really funny I do it justice in the uh, in the description, guys. Like, how else? What are the most important things about about? I, yeah, I don't think you mentioned the word mock- mockumentary, but if you haven't seen this, you are of course familiar. Oh, it's I, true. I, I called it a satirical you're, film. It's true. You're, you're you're familiar with this is Spinal Tap, like one of the very earliest examples of the mockumentary. Um, and this is uh, would you say this is the peak of the art form? Best in show. Ooh, it's it's pretty up there, right? No, huh? it yeah it it has to be. Yeah, it has to be top three for sure. I don't know. I like, I mean, we can do a, a quick, like, uh, uh, lightning round later on our favorite Christopher Guest movies, but uh, I, I am a Mighty Wind uh, sort of fellow myself. I mean, I would have to say that the high watermark for the mockumentary was the television show The Office, probably, just because it kind of ran it. It took it from this very high height and then just sort of let it run out, right? It's the sort of... Uh, uh, you know, the the intensity and the intimacy of the Ricky Gervais office, followed by it sort of playing out and kind of uh, going down from dawn to day, right, uh, into the beloved and long-running American office. But no, it, Best in Show is great. I, I think I think that a Best in Show is a really super great, well-made movie, and uh, I, I'm, glad, I'm excited that we get a chance to talk about it, even though it is for a sad reason. So... Definitely. It's so, up what, there. so I, I want to like uh, I want to poke a little bit on your your experience in in the comedy world as a practitioner and a uh, coach of improv comedy and a director. Um, what is funny about this movie? Oh man! Yeah. Right. So. <laughs> right. Uh, so yeah, exactly. So the you know, is actually what? Yes, yeah, so I think I do. I, mean, I have a, can give you a couple takes. Why? Do you have an answer? You're going to tell me <laughs> no, no, I don't, I'm right I or wrong. <laughs> um, so the thing that's funny about so so the, what the movie is really about, right? Is it's about a bunch of people who handle their dogs and they project onto their dogs and their dog handling their own uh, problems, right? And in particular, what it is, is it's it's a, it seems to me like and this might be just what they happened upon by chance, because one of the characteristics of it being mostly improvised is it happens upon patterns that the audience can then imprint on rather than necessarily them being intended. But I think the general gist of it, right, is that a dog is not aware that they are in a dog show. <laughs> that is like the, the that is the funniest thing. Right. About about this whole situation is that you're taking these dogs. It's not even like a dog race or like a dog obstacle course or an obedience thing. Right. Like even to that extent, you could argue, okay, you know, a horse that's being raced doesn't necessarily know that it's a a competitive athlete. It just knows the sort of terror and the speed. And you could argue that. But but even then, 
If you take the horse out of that situation and put in a situation where its job is to be representative of its breed and stand there, right? right? Like the the horse has like no clue why it's in this room, right? Uh, and for a dog, right? A dog in a dog show of the sort where you're 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 what you're doing is you're evaluating the attributes of the dog as per the specifications of the dog breed from the various breeding society that happens to be part of whatever, you know, consensus or official codified collective is behind the dog show. And, and it's, it is funny that people watch dog shows without knowing how any of that works, that it is a contest that has a winner and almost nobody watching the show understands why the dog that won won. And, uh, and so it is a competition that people don't know that they're in. Or the dogs don't know that they're in. And the funny thing about this movie is the obliviousness of the care of the comic characters and this sort of consistent and played out obliviousness of the characters to the the their own relationships with being involved in a dog show uh, in the sense that they are all it said like multiple times that they are basically the dogs. They, they have come to this dog show. They have personal attributes that they can't change that are sort of essential to them, much like a sort of dog breed. And, you know, once you have that characteristic and you've refined it, you know, to a really high degree and you've heightened it to a really high degree, these are all functional things that are attributable to good comedy uh, or I should say to funny things, to, to a good comedy, whatever. But the idea that if you take a you take a very clearly defined pattern and you expand on it is one of the sort of building blocks of comedy. And these characters have their personal games that they play and their personal uh, attributes. But but and yeah, they are oblivious and unaware of the role of the dog show in their lives. They just go there and they're looking for this this transcendental signifier, this validation of the victory at the dog show. But, of course, they're not even the ones that are competing in it. The dogs are. <laughs> and I think that that's really the, the kernel of the funniness of this movie, which is just the the fundamental absurdity of these people being in this competition. And, and the way that that's played out is these intimate interviews with them where they describe everything but what's actually happening. Right, right. Which is where they sort of dance around the subject and dance around the subject. And sometimes they hit the subject really hard, but it's in some really strange way. So, like, I'll make an example because it's very possible you didn't watch this movie. Um, you didn't watch this movie uh, because it's been out for a long time and you just listen to the podcast every week. So uh, Parker Posey, right? That's who it is in this yeah. movie? Yes. She, yeah. she and her husband, and I don't know the actor's name. His name is Michael Hitchcock. So so Parker Posey and Michael Hitchcock, and correct me if I'm wrong, have a Weimaraner, right? Yes. And so there's this whole thing that the people are like their dogs to an extent. Uh, and so these two people are, are fierce with each other, right? They have a sort of inner intensity. But uh, one of the other weird, funny things about a dog show, maybe even funnier than the fact that the dog doesn't know that it's there, is that a dog show is about doing everything that is uncharacteristic of a dog, <laughs> which is stand still, mm-hmm. look formal, <laughs> right? It's a formal event for for animals, right? Like it's like it's it's like penguins don't actually wear tuxedos, right? So like you can joke that a penguin wears a tuxedo, but a dog show is basically asking a dog to do the equivalent of wear a tuxedo and go to a formal dinner so, when the dog is thoroughly unaware of the situation. So Pete, right? uh, um, if if penguins did wear tuxedos, how would we know? We'd have to look for the rental room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. The, the dogs are not chewing on anything. They're not licking people. They're not yeah. peeing on the couch. They're not doing anything the dogs actually do in real life. 
And so the way that that relates to the main characters is that they're all suppressing something. They're all kind of overwriting something. They're, they're all taking the unacceptable part of their personality and attempting to shove it in the background and not show it. And the movie is about them failing to not show that part of their personality all as well, as well as this idea that they're all kind of in search of this validation of winning the dog show. So like, so for, for example, Parker Posey and Michael Hitchcock play a couple that have a Weimar honor standard kind of comedic rule is that the owners and the dogs have a lot in common. These two people are very intense and they're very physically intense and they're very verbally intense, but their outward persona is as very refined and very staid and very calm. And because of this, they are in a huge kind of mental health bind and they're, they're at their therapist and they're trying to figure out what's wrong. They, they're, they're trying to get sort of experimental sex back into their relationship. He's much older than she is. They haven't really dealt with that at all. Uh, and the result, and the result of it is they blame their dog, right? Like the dog witnesses them having sex and they blame the dog for their un- inability to comfortably express this uh, aggressive aspect of their personalities, which results in them fighting each other a lot and getting angry a lot. And, and a, and a great scene where Parker Posey has a full on meltdown at a hotel gift shop, trying to buy a uh, doggy toy that matches precisely a doggy toy that has been lost. And so it's sort of like, they're going to the dog show to try to get validation for this part of their personality that is that is only a very, very small part of who they are. And they're trying to kind of invalidate everything else. And then also, we all know what they're really like. And we but they don't. They're oblivious to themselves. So when they get into these situations and they have these conversations, we can see what their personality is like. And because they're overblown caricatures, uh, they're improv characters. There's a lot of heightening and extension of these things. Um so that's one of the games, right? I mean, there's also this sort of uh, fey pre-queer eye uh, gay couple that has the Shih Tzu, right? Which is which, which again, we it is a, is a reminder, if nothing else, of how drastically uh, the culture in the United States, at least, changed in the early 2000s around gay people, because they're a, a very like, oh my god, kind of, um, but like not in a not in a sort of um, dope way. Right? Sure. It's, it's yeah. clear that the, that the jokes are being made kind of from outside of the community rather than from yes. inside the community. Right. Yes. And that, that, yeah, a lot of it is about sort of stereotypical ways of, of speaking and acting. But that's, that's Michael McKeon and, and uh, John Michael Higgins, the two, yeah. you know, the two actors who do that. Um, and they have a little tiny, yeah, they have a little tiny Shih Tzu. Yeah. And the and the, the idea is what uh, Higgins is this big peacock, and a lot of these couples have have a, a sex life issue that's in the background, and yet it's a dog show, so it's super formal. It's supposed to be very family friendly. The adults aren't really supposed to be banging at the dog show, and the movie has this wonderful tone where they they bring it up and they discuss it, but it never truly breaks through the surface tension of the movie, the the various rather intense sexual. Uh, psychodramas that the different couples are going through in the backgrounds of their lives, right? In this case, what? It's that that Higgins is a real peacock and he wants the attention. He's the he's the guy who walks the dog, but he's wearing such a crazy and loud suit with his frosted tips and everything that he really wants everyone to look at him while he's showing the dog off. And and the camera, I think, doesn't even focus on the dog when he's walking his dog at the best in show. It just no, the, yeah, the him. dog is cropped out. The dog is like framed out of the bottom of the uh, of the shot. And uh, the Fred Willard joke is that um, 
Fred Willard joke is that the, you know, uh, if someone were wearing that in my neighborhood, he better be a hotel doorman. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing that's funny. It's just it's just clever, right? As lame. And it's also lame. <laughs> There's a lot of lameness in this movie. Um, I guess part of the satire is is that it's deliberately the characters are deliberately dull. Sorry, Mark, go ahead. I was going to ask, like, can we talk since kind of dissecting the humor here a little bit? And uh, we're also paying tribute to Fred Willard. Right. Can we talk about how difficult it is to make bad jokes funny? Oh, man. Yeah. Right. Talk about that for a little bit. Like so, he, the, the jokes that he delivers are just like. The, like the worst possible the dad jokes don't, don't even do it justice. Right. He's just a buffoon. And he like here's the best example of this is right. Uh, when the bloodhound comes out, he just goes on this like uh, he just will not let go of this idea that, hey, would it be hysterical if you put a Sherlock Holmes hat in the pipe? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> on the bloodhound, and that would just be great. And yeah. then the other more serious announcer shoots the idea down, and then I think, I think, at least once, if not twice more, he continues to bring up the idea. It's dumb, right? But um, it it, uh, it it works. Why is that? Well, it reminds me of. I also recently watched. I don't know if you guys have ever seen this. Uh, the perfect bid, the contestant who knew too much, which is a documentary about the prices, right? Mm. And and one of the things that one of the producers says. So the, the there's the sort of Bob Barker era prices, right? And the Drew Carey era prices, right? And this and the movie follows a particular guy who becomes obsessed with winning at the prices, right? And develops a database of all the prices of all the products they put on the show. And he goes on the show once and wins like modest. But then he helps a whole bunch of other people and he goes to the studio audience and he like shouts the right numbers to them to help them. And there's a disconnect between the Bob Barker era and the Drew Carey era around this guy, because in the Bob Barker era, they're like, yeah, whatever. Right. He's funny. And and one of the things the producer says is like the thing that makes the prices right a good show is that Bob roots for the contestants. It's not Bob versus the contestants, and it's not the contestants versus each other. It's Bob Barker rooting for the contestants against the games. And and so that means that we're all on the same team, and that part is part of what makes it a fun show. And whereas in the Drew Carey thing, it was like, oh, man, we're so scared because he very clearly cheated. He goes on the show. They go. Someone goes on the show and gets like exactly the right number on a showcase, right? And it's like, oh, somebody cheated. We're going to lose our job. We're going to get shut down. Where's the standards and practices situation? The fans are sabotaging us, right? Like uh, they, they don't have that same – they don't have the luxury really of having that same sort of old-timey showbiz attitude about like, yeah, whatever. Who cares? So we gave away a car. Whatever. We made it back, Right. Um, the way that, that, that what this makes you think of with regards to Best in Show is that, you know, the Fred Willard character in Best in Show is on the side of first of the audience, but also of all the people in the dog show, <laughs> because the dog show is fundamentally absurd. And and so he is sort of almost it's almost like he's rooting against the existence of the dog show by constantly making oblivious comments that don't take into account any sort of even basic knowledge about how dog shows work. So like, for example, when he's like, Oh, that's a miniature schnauzer, you know, how do they, how do they make them that small? Do they, are they just children? Are they young? Do they shrink them? Like, is there a process? <laughs> right? And then the guy goes, says something like, well, no, they, there's the British guy who's the actual dog show guy. He's like, no, they breed them. And he's like, Oh, yeah, you think you'd breed something to be big, like a watermelon or a pumpkin, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's funny 
Be, well, first of all, because it's true, right? Because we <laughs> recognize that it is absurd that people deliberately breed small versions of schnauzers because a regular schnauzer is too big, right? Like that, that is absurd. Um, but also the idea that like if you find yourself watching the dog show and enjoying it, it is not because unless you're unless you've got a very, very specific interest, it is not because you care about the, the breeding of dogs. Right. Um, in the sense of like you don't care about the specific the specific husbandry aspect, the lineage aspect, the sort of comp- competitive scientific aspect of it. You might like dog breeds because of the diversity and the personality. Right. And the. um the, the, the sort of uh, the character that it brings. Right. And then the whole idea of like, I know this kind of dog. I know that kind of dog. I had that kind of dog. I know somebody who has that kind of dog and dog breeds give us the illusion of it being the same dog to an extent. Uh, like we know them already. Um, but yeah, but it's like he is he. I mean, when he's the thing about him talking about Sherlock Holmes and the bloodhound is he's right. Right. Like he's he, he even says like, yeah, the crowd would go wild. The crowd would love it. Right. If, if the, if the bloodhound was wearing a Sherlock Holmes hat. Um, and, and and so he's on the side. He's, he's on our side and he's charismatic and he's on the side of the protagonists to an extent, because I think he's pointing out that they should sort of be appreciated in the moment. Right. Uh, everybody should kind of. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's like we really are no losers here. This would you know? th- so, so Pete. This occasioned uh, discord in my household. The the okay. sh- the Sherlock Holmes joke uh, oh. because, and I, I hope I won't. I hope I won't get in trouble. I hope I'm not violating any any privacy by saying this. But uh, my girlfriend and I are on opposite sides of a very important cultural no nay moral line. And that line is, do you dress the dog up in cute costumes or not? <laughs> I am dead set against this. I sure. think that that my uh, that Gus, my my beautiful basset hound, uh, is a majestic beast. And, uh, you know, that his his dignity would be impugned uh, somehow by uh, being by being <laughs> dressed up, though. Honestly, the little doggy reenactments of Gone with the Wind and Casablanca at the end of this movie. You know, if anything, if anything was an argument to change, uh, to change my mind, this, this film contained it. But, uh, but when, when Fred Willard made his, as you say, good hearted, warm, charismatic, uh, suggestion that this bloodhound who absolutely should be dressed up in a Sherlock Holmes hat with a (laughs) a magnifying glass and a a pipe somehow, um, that, that this should, that this should be done. Uh, she looked over at me and was like, see, this is what I've been telling you for weeks now. (laughs) We need to go get a deerstalker hat and find some kind of stuffed, stuffed pipe that Gus can, can hold in his mouth. And I was outraged. I tell you outraged. By this, uh, uh, by this outcome, I don't but know. Man, I guess, you can make the, yeah. get a real pipe and make it smoke somehow. I mean, that would just be amazing, though, right? Would you appreciate that? That would be dangerous. That would be very. That be. Um, I guess the irony of his character is that he both cares. Right. He, he actually earnestly likes dog the dogs, but he also just doesn't care and care. And he cares in the sense of. He sees them and he has a feeling and he expresses the feeling and there is a sympathy in the feeling, but he doesn't care and that he doesn't go to the trouble of finding out anything true. Uh, I think you had said a fun piece of trivia about this movie, right? 
about it. Oh, yeah, that, that according, according at least to the IMDb trivia section, that like um, Christopher Guest told Fred Willard not to do any research on dogs before coming <laughs> in, to know absolutely nothing about the breeds, about the, as you say, the animal husbandry aspects of like, you know, encouraging certain traits in the animals through breeding and, and so on, that like, uh, no, just come in and uh, sort of call it as you call it as you see it, which, uh, which he definitely does. I, I want to zero in a little bit just cause we're sort of celebrating Fred Willard a little bit. Um, I want to zero in on the aspect of him like delivering one-liners or delivering, you know, bad jokes and, and making them good somehow. I feel like the, the sort of the grammatology of this or the, 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 like the Finnegan's wake of this is, in a mighty wind where he hones he hones this idea of of just through force of will through force of charisma personality delivery almost through technique making something funny that's not funny um mm. by it, coining catchphrases that are not real catchphrases right so in uh the next the next mockumentary film which is called the mighty wind which which uh takes a swing at the folk music uh community those those fat cats in the folk music community um the uh you know that there, there's some punching up the um the the character he plays is a manager when he's introducing himself in his you know uh his interview he says he used to be a child actor he was on television and he said and and you know i i would go to camera and say my catchphrases you know all my catchphrases my famous catchphrases i got a real red wagon and i mean of course you know what happened you know i like the cow would kick over the ladder the ladder would have a can of paint the ca- paint would fall on my sister my sister would run around the Bard would be on fire. I'd come in and say, what happened? (laughs) And that's not real. It's not from anything, but just it's, there's something about it that he activates the DNA. Like he, he activates the reference DNA without with with the, the reference pattern recognition sensors without an actual reference, you know, uh, to deploy in order to do this. And I think it's, um, I think it's amazing. Now I, I watched the commentary. I like the movie so much that I watched the director's commentary of a mighty wind and on it, Christopher guest actually said, Oh God! Here's Fred Willard. Here come the one-liners. I mean, with great, with great admiration and affection. But he was kind of playing it, being like, "Oh, sheesh! Here he goes." And it's like, uh, you know, it, it being, uh, you know, being given the key to the city uh, in the course of the movie by the deputy mayor. He says, "Well, thank you very much, Mister Deputy Mayor. Hey, someone shot the mayor, but they did not shoot the deputy mayor." <laughs> you know, and just and Christopher. Christopher Guest himself, a hilarious man, is reduced to, in this commentary, just saying the word zing every time Fred Fred Willard utters a sentence. It's like, someone shot the mayor, but they did not shoot the deputy. Zing. (laughs) Well, it's okay. You've been here with us the whole time, Mr. Mr. Deputy Mayor. We're not uh, going to investigate you too closely. I'll take that money anytime. Zing. (laughs) And it's so, it's the, the as I say, it's the Finnegan's wake of this because it's it's pushed to to a level that is that requires great connoisseurship, I think, to like appreciate all the 
uh, all the ins and outs of. Um, who else? Who who else is funny in the in the dog movie? I really like the Christopher Guest character in this uh, film, um, partly because he embodies most clearly what you were talking about, Pete, in terms of the way that people either reenact or kind of project onto their dog, uh, their thoughts, their problems, their personality traits. And he is, you know, a practicing ventriloquist, this character. He has a (laughs) ventriloquist dummy, but like some of the the most fun stuff is that the ventriloquism he does with his bloodhound, uh, imagining that the bloodhound is talking and quite literally projecting his voice into the the mouth of the bloodhound also that's a uh you know i know i have a, a scent hound of my own but that a bloodhound is a beautiful creature it's a beautiful animal a bloodhound yeah yeah it's uh it's it's like i guess what it's it's the it's the surprising cleverness of the character playing dumber than they are is it the low expectation what is it that i don't know what is it that really makes this kind of thing work uh, this kind of joke—it's—it's it's so tricky. It's, I don't know. Um, yeah, and to 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 a certain extent. So I I watched a, a comedy recently, and I um I I I'll actually not we may talk about it, but I, so I'll not say what it is. But I I thought that the actors weren't playing to the top of their intelligence, right? right like right, they, right. they were, and that's, I don't know if I can muster a good explanation of that term. It comes from Upright Citizens Brigade, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Mornia Till I Join Ya, UCB. The, um, They're still around. They just lost their physical space. That's oh, I see. Well, yeah, I guess uh, physical space yeah. doesn't mean anything in the world any, anymore. But um, <laughs> can, in, in terms of improv comedy, can you, can you explain this term of art, uh, Pete? Yeah. So the issue, so playing to the top of your intelligence mean doesn't necessarily mean that your character is smart, but it means that like don't deliberately make dumber choices than you're capable of making. I guess I guess that that elides it by saying dumber choices. I, I should say that to play to the top of your intelligence means that. When determining what your character does or because because it's about playing a character and the choices that a character makes in a scene, um, there's a temptation. One of the ways to explain it is negatively, which is not helpful, but I'll do that first. There's a temptation to deliberately try to be funny by making stupid or self-destructive choices. And this ends up not being funny because it's not interesting or creative because – uh, you, when you're coming up, coming up with this is it's very improv. There's an aspect of it that's improv specific, which is that if you are not thinking, you know, if you're if you're not really trying to kind of be inventive and do the difficult work of coming up with new scenes and stuff in the moment, if you're not putting the work in to uh, to do things in an interesting new way and you think that you have a kind of old, reliable way that will work better, uh then you're going to be less successful because you're going to be boring. And the point of improv is kind of to surprise. Um, is that was one dimension of it. But another dimension of it is just that what it, it disengages people from the stakes a little bit. Um, in this, it's such a hard term to define. Yeah, no, I, I, um, I get it, but it's, it, it has to do, I think it has to do to a certain extent with, with, uh, a couple of dimensions of integrity, right? And like the one that you're yeah. talking, the one that you're talking about is, is integrity of character, right? And so no one sets out to be stupid. 
you know? And so the, even if you're playing someone who is, who is, uh, not smart, right? Who is like not intelligent, they are doing the absolute best they, they can with, you know, the, the constraints that they're operating under, given, you know, given the circumstances that they're, that they're operating under. And when you, you know, as an actor start to make stupid choices on behalf of your, of your, stupid character you know oh gosh my baby's you know i don't know what let's where do we put the baby do we feed the bottle in its butt like i, I that's a yeah, dumb that's yeah. a dumb example that's a perfect like, example that's a perfect example like it's funny to put the bottle in the baby's butt but it disengages you from it because it makes it hard for you to think of this person as an actual person which makes it hard for you to think of their choices of having any stakes yeah exactly right? and so yeah. it so it 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 wins it wins a short term it wins kind of a short term win in that you can probably get a laugh doing that kind of stuff or uh you know or the like what a neurosurgeon i've only been a fry cook at mcdonald's all right give me the knife you know like that's like um you probably can get a laugh doing that that kind of thing but if you've ever watched an hour built about or built around that kind of those kind of laughs it's it's like lead it's it's deadening um and so, like, I, I was watching, I, you know, I was, I was watching this, this, uh, TV show where someone made a joke about, oh, and all of the fancy dinners, you know, it's a boyfriend, girlfriend thing, all the fancy dinners you took me to at the Cheesecake Factory. And it was like, it was italicized and bolded and underlined. And it was like, ah, oh, this person is stupid and has no taste. And there's no, like, there was no reason for that character to be stupid and has, have, have no taste. And I thought, eh, this is not playing to the, to the top of their, yeah. their intelligence and i like uh, this a lot of the christopher guest stuff um like walks this this line you know what i mean to me especially in something like guffman where it's like ha these these small town yokels are ridiculous for thinking the the thing that they do could have artistic merit and that they could could go to broadway you know like uh that's uh it's probably true, but I'm, I'm not sure it's funny, strictly speaking. I mean, now that said, their grandiose ideas about themselves are are funny, you know, and the right. the self delusion uh, that you know that they um, kind of events that's that's funny, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, so so like the the part the part for me like the the parts of this that age well are the bits that hit on what you've been talking about, Pete, uh, about like the sort of the self delusion about kind of not naming, not noticing, like studiously ignoring the elephant in the room, and you know some of the like oh the manner the gay mannerisms of the John Michael Higgins character or the like the kind of uh, uh, the relationship between. Gen- Jennifer Coolidge and um, uh, what's her name? Jane, Jane Lynch. Right. Um, that like at the end, it's, you know, uh, the, at the end, they like start the, the lesbian dog breeder magazine, like the things that these are, these are the things that haven't aged well, though, you know, honestly, we probably should judge it by the context of the time that it was released into. Yeah. I think what I would say is like, the challenge with because we've all a lot of people are probably protesting against a lot of this right now. I will say 
when people talk about the theory, a lot of people do suggest that that the term should be reframed as top of your integrity from top of your intelligence, because it's really about maintaining the integrity of who the character is as a fictional being. What I will say is that the real you see a lot of funny stuff where people do stupid things. Right. So there's lots of funny there's lots of funny comedy where people end up doing stupid stuff. What I would say is that the challenge is is often to come up with what is the reason that the person does the stupid thing and what's the reason that matters for them that would induce them to do the stupid thing that matters enough to them that they would choose to do the stupid thing. So what, what, I mean, the most basic example is like, hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville and this is jackass. Right? So like, <laughs> like Johnny, I mean, that's a great example, right? The Johnny Knoxville character in jackass always seems aware that what he's about to do is really stupid. And he often is sort of wincing when he's about to undergo physical pain. But like, He's introduced it by saying, this is the show Jackass. This is the show where I have to do stupid things. And so by playing a, a character, right, himself, I suppose, but a character nonetheless, uh, who who appreciates and understands and reacts to the things that are happening at the top of his intelligence, like, I don't want to have my penis hit by a mousetrap, right? like not pretend like it's just going to be fine, right? Um, he, he keeps us engaged and, and maintains the integrity of the character while at the same time doing stupid things. Another example... I, I always like to point out Will Ferrell characters when il- illustrating improv concepts because they often act in very like broad ways that are easy to uh, analyze because they're they're like blown out and super simple. So like in uh, in in uh, the Anchorman, right? There, there's a great line. I, I mean, I think it's great where where Ron Burgundy has been kind of on the way down, right? He's he's lost his job. He's he's homeless. He's drifting. He's lost emotionally and physically. And there's a great scene where he's carrying a carton of milk and he like drinks from the carton of milk in the hundred degree San Diego sun, and it's all chunky. And he says out loud, "Milk was a poor choice," right? <laughs> and it's like he did something really stupid, which was that he poured a bunch of spoiled milk on himself. But it's like you the the reason behind it is like he's never been in this situation before. And so we're watching him kind of figure it out. Right. And, and so he's not somebody that would have been outside drinking a beverage in the heat. And, and so we can watch him learn it. Right. We can lo- watch the things that he didn't know and then watch his reaction that sort of credibly shows that he didn't know. Um, I guess I would say that ignorance and stupidity are not the same thing. Sure. The, the, and, the kind of the er example of this from Ron Burgundy, isn't it? Is, is I immediately regret this decision. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. That's a, that's a sort of cheating way to like get to the top of it. So in, in, in uh, best in show, a good example of this is Catherine O'Hara's sexual history. Yeah. Right? Which is introduced early in the movie as like, I've had hundreds of boyfriends. Wait, what really? Hundreds? Yeah. Okay, right. Like, and this is like a, a revelation to her husband, Eugene Levy, right, played by Eugene Levy in this movie, that she slept with hundreds of guys before him. And then the running gag throughout the movie is that she keeps running into dudes who she slept with, and the dudes are all like very, very inappropriately forward about directly discussing their past experience in front of her husband. And the way that that's played to the top of her intelligence is that she doesn't like she doesn't doubly shame Eugene Levy that much, right? Like she, she doesn't like go the much. It's not one of those things where she's like, Oh, I know. And she's going on running off with them. These like random dudes. She's like, yeah, you know, that's in the past. This is my husband. Please try to behave yourself. Um, and, and she, and we think she, they just ride the line. Like they, she just rides the line where she doesn't get mortified 
And that's like a little bit inhuman that she that she doesn't get seem to get too embarrassed by all this stuff happening. But it's but it's just plausible enough in the context that this is something that it's not really bothered her. And she's only starting to learn that it bothers him. Um, and, and and you watch him struggle with it, right? Because he doesn't want to be the person who says anything about it because he didn't know about it. And that, and he doesn't, and he's also not a very assertive guy. And, and so like, it's, it's, you could have played that whole bit like a lot stupider, uh, but instead it's actually like, you know, it, it's, it's kind of touching <laughs> and, and it, the way it comes around at the end where Eugene Levy ends up being the one who walks the dog, right? Which is like, you're my future is what she keeps saying to him, right? These guys are my past. You're my future. Uh, and he's the one who gets to win best in show uh, is is kind of really touching when you think about and, and how much would that have been robbed? Right. If she had been, you know, sneaking around behind his back with uh, with the dean from Necessary Roughness. Right. Or with, like, <laughs> right. She's not she's not a slut. Right. She just was ex- experimental and adventurous in her youth um and and had a lot of partners right and is you know and and i mean and yeah that's an example of a Catherine o'hara's Catherine o'hara O'Hara plays a lot of characters who do stupid things and she imbues the stupid decisions with the real kind of uh humanity of of composure and regret right like this thing well, of like yeah i both know what i did and i regret it but i'm also dealing with it and it's sort of suffering through it. It's very Chicago style, I guess. And she can do that. She can do that. She, she's an incredible actor. She's one of those things where, like, uh, one of those things, one of those uh, illustrations of the principle that comic actors can play drama, uh, dramatic okay. actors can't necessarily play comedy. But there's, she does some stuff in Christopher Guest movies um, that is sort of so dark, right? Like in, uh, in a mighty wind, you know, after she like, uh, she returns to her husband after having this sort of thing with, with Mitch and Mickey again, you know, uh, and enjoying kind of like a little brief resurgence of fame. She goes back to her husband and like advertises for his, you know, uh, urology medical supplies business or something like that, like uses her fame to do that or uh in um uh for your consideration where she you know is an is an actress who once did some some small things and now is like going to get re uh, now has like a second chance at glory and the way that that like the way the way that her uh because because it's never played for laughs, like the laughs don't seem uh, the laughs don't don't seem unearned. I don't know. It's a, they don't yeah. seem cheap, right? In a way, and it's uh, and and she just gives it so so much humanity and 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 pathos, really, a lot of it. Yeah, that's one of the great things about the Christopher Guest movies is that they're they're able to bring real pathos without really bringing suffering. Like you don't, you don't, you don't, there's not, there's not a point in the, I mean, not, I'm sure I don't, haven't seen for your consideration, but as I recall, there aren't really a ton of like weeping and gnashing your teeth scenes in Christopher Guest movies. They have this composure to them where you don't really watch the characters like miserable, but they do experience sad things. Mm. Uh, and I think that's interesting that he, and, and part of it reminds me of how, uh, Sometimes I think about when I think about like Jane Austen and I think about British stories about romance and how they wouldn't really function if people didn't have really aggressive role like rules about what could be said in polite company. Uh-huh. Right. Like or Downton Abbey. Right. It's like, well, I mean, you know, uh, if, if the if the servants could talk to the Crawleys in Downton Abbey 
any way they wanted and face no consequences, then there would be no drama in the situations that they're facing. Um, right. Sure. Or, like, or if Lady Mary could be like, yeah, a boned Mr. Pamuk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell everybody I'm a, you know, I do my own thing. I'm Lady Mary. Gosh, gosh darn it. Right. Like, and you know, and then Slay, Lady Edith is Slay, like, you bitch. Slay queen. Right? Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that's, but there's a sense of decorum and decorum I think is often really helpful in both comedy and drama. A, because status is helpful. That's one of the things is like, who, how do you, how do you adjudicate a conflict in a comedic way? Uh, well, one of the, them is you prevent it from boiling over by creating status as an obstacle for people to just hurt each other. Right. Like, it's like, oh, you could, you could just, you could just murder them or punch them in the face. Right. Like, you could do all sorts of things, uh, but you don't because you live in a society. Right. Um, and, and that's that's one of the things that helps along these kinds of things. And it's seems- not anymore, baby. Yeah. COVID-19. <laughs> Woo! Punch him in the face. So I'm, fe- I'm feeling I'm feeling punchy and improvisational tonight after watching this after watching this Christopher Guest movie. Um, sorry, you're 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 making actually a very good point that status is useful comedically because it it constrains behavior in particular ways uh, that you know cause you to behave in a comic way rather than you know uh, fisticuffs resorting to fisticuffs. Almost as if you've been trained in the manner of a dog or something. <laughs> <laughs> like you've, you've been bred and trained to be the way you are. Let's talk a little yeah. bit about the mockumentary format. I mean, because it's such a big part of this movie. It's a big part of the Christopher Guest movies. It's, you know, with The Office, uh, I think Modern Family sort of uses it a little bit. Uh, all with always slightly different rules. And I think it's actually like very different this film is released into a very different, uh, sorry, viewing it today, rather it was, it was released into a very different, um, environment vis-a-vis kind of the rules of, of mockumentary, because we've all seen, um, we've all seen the bachelor, you know what I mean? Like we've seen reality TV show that is uh, TV shows that are unintentional mockumentary. Um, and that like, so the kind of the role of the kind of like direct to camera interview is is something that we have kind of media literacy for. So like I I guess like the the author is dead and everything so maybe we just need to talk about it kind of synchronically as as we see it but but one of the advantages of it um is that it gives the, the characters an occasion to sort of do revealing things, you know, in a way that they they might not uh have occasion to do in the in the the course of normal living their life. Mark, I know you're a big like, like uh, Spinal Tap fan, for example, how do you feel about the kind of the what the mockumentary format adds to that um, to this style of film? Um, I think you're getting at it right. It's it's the uh, the contrast between like you know what they reveal, um, the actions you see uh, uh, occur, uh, and then how they describe them to themselves. Right. Um, in particular, in Spinal Tap. But since you brought up Spinal Tap. Thank you for that excuse to talk about Smile Tap. Um, I, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, you see the band play their crude songs with their uh, immature lyrics. And um, and then, uh, you know, you see the characters speak about them as if it's like, you know, this, this grand poetry. Right. You know, so that that's a that's occasion for like a, a lot of the humor. Uh, in, in these sorts of things, um, I'll, I'll try to come back to uh, like something specific about how it works in this here. But since you mentioned liter- li- media literacy, 
earlier and kind of like, you know, the, uh, watching this in 2020, as opposed to thinking about how it was released in, in 2000, in the year 2000, it could not help but to, uh, but to, for my mind to go back to, uh, like what, a couple of months ago, watching Tiger King. Mm. And comparing it with this, right? Because like, there's 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 odd similarities. Oh my god, yeah. you're so right. I can't believe I didn't make that connection. You are onto something, my dude. It's best in, I, I, it's I, best in cage, <laughs> right? I mean, you know, people and their animals, and how it's ostensibly about the animals, but um, really it reveals so much about the about the people themselves. Okay, it seems like I I, I set up some uh, lit up some light bulbs there. So like, uh, what what else does that bring to mind? Well, how how what is the provenance of the footage, right? Like, and how aware are people that they're being filmed at any given time? Like, what is the relationship of the people? Like, one of the things Tiger King does is it mixes together footage obtained in wildly different ways, you know? Right. Some of it, uh, and some of it, like, purposefully uh, purposefully shot, uh, like a moving, um, the moving poetry about how I saw the tiger and the tiger saw man. Um, but also then some stuff that was on like security camera footage or, uh, you know, what have you that like, um, or people may not have been totally aware that this was being, being shot, uh, or that it was being shot for the, the documentary, you know, so for this documentary, cause there are actually a couple different documentaries in in tiger king so like speaking of of media literacy a little bit like you know i don't know i'm i am not or at least not yet raising kids in this environment but i can imagine like having the conversations eventually of like you know look at that shot that uh uh we see the person walking in which means the camera was already on the inside of the door huh how do you think the camera got onto the inside of uh, that door before that? Like, I, I have no idea how you you teach teach kids about these things um, these days. But like, uh, we seem to be more sophisticated um, about it than than the environment that that Govan was uh, not Govan that Best and Show was was released into. Uh, Pete, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think that it's. Um I mean, it's interesting to think of Tiger King as a Christopher Guest-esque. Uh, the cruelty, of course, is different. Um, and yeah, the the idea that you need to be able... The idea that people take docu- actual documentary footage and are so influenced by mockumentary that they cut it and produce it in the style of mockumentary, and also that you have to be aware of... You have to be aware of information from outside the show that you're currently watching or or I guess what probabilistic information from outside the show you're currently watching about the provenance of the footage that you're watching uh, is a pretty, pretty sophisticated notion that you have to keep in mind. Uh, And I guess Christopher Guest movies are already pretty sophisticated because they are so. Uh, they, there's a lot of appeal to other art forms, right? The like you can call dog breeding an art form, or folk music, or theater. You know, there's a lot of well, these characters are in some way frustrating or embracing the expectation we have about how they should behave in the situation, um, and they're either like doing exactly what we think they we, they would do, or they're being totally absurd, and, and sometimes both. And so it's a question. You know, it it does remind me of. Uh, 
Uh, so I've been playing The Witcher Three a lot lately, uh, and this is a little bit of a tangent. Uh, a lot is an under is an overstatement. I have a newborn baby. I'm not doing anything a lot, um, but I've been playing The Witcher Three lately, and I have to be reminded of how at the beginning of the Legend of Zelda, the first Legend of Zelda game, there uh, you don't get the sword right. To get to get the in the first Legend of Zelda game, you have to go into the cave where you start in order to get the the sword. Otherwise, your character is utterly helpless in the environment that they go out into. And yeah, it's possible to win the game without it. A lot of people figure it out right away. But the rationale behind this was that the designer expected you to have friends who also played the game, and he wanted to put something in the game early on that encouraged you to talk with your friends about it. Uh, and the idea was that there would be this big, singular, counterintuitive thing that the kids would talk to each other about, which would make the game more of a social experience. And so with The Witcher 3, I have to sometimes remind myself, well, I don't know what I have to do in this situation. Well, the game was made with the understanding that the Internet exists and that I, I will be able to look these things up if I so choose. So why am I resisting doing it so much and insisting on doing it myself? That's not how the game is made, Right. And so I would think that that is part of these movies that you're really you're really not supposed to be withholding your previous knowledge. Uh, you know, it's expected at this point that everybody has a certain amount of savviness about various sorts of media, uh, and uh, and in that sense, it, it shouldn't really be that shocking, right? That you have to make these sorts of determinations. But I would say that. The popular culture now seems to be in a very uncomfortable place with this notion, where uh, whereas Christopher Guest's stuff seems like it's in more of a comfortable place. Maybe that's because its audience is niche enough that you don't really worry about the people who watch Christopher Guest movies and, and don't get it. Um, whereas there's so many things now that that don't have that level of sort of rarefied uh, you know, well, if you don't get it, then you don't get it. You know, you're not in the in crowd. You know, there's there's it's it's it, it's tricky, right? Like, what are the prerequisites to watching Best in Show? Um, liking dogs is a good one. Being at least basically familiar with the existence of dogs right, is, is something that's very necessary to understanding Best in Show. But like having watched the National Dog Show after the Thanksgiving Day Parade with, you know, is is, is a great prerequisite. It really helps. I would say, right? Like, understand this movie. I think I think I enjoy this movie a lot more because I like John O'Hurley's hosting of the National Dog Show, and and I'm familiar a little bit with how the dog shows work. I'm familiar enough with dog shows to know that everything that Fred Willard is saying about them is wrong. <laughs> so, and so, like, that's sort of what makes it funny. Now, I, of course, can't imagine what it would be like to not know the things that I know. So I don't know whether this is the kind of movie where if you really don't have any of the prerequisites, it still works or not. I don't know. Um, um, I'm not really sure either. I will just add that um, when Spinal Tap came out in 1984, there were enough people that did not kind of uh, were, uh, didn't cotton on to the mockumentary nature of it. That, that, that wasn't a word back then, but that's what it was. Right. And they didn't understand that it was fake. And they thought the Spinal Tap was a real band. That was an actual phenomenon at the time. Gotcha. I was listening to a podcast. Today. I was listening to uh, Reply All, the podcast from Gimlet, um, now from Spotify, I suppose. That that, uh, and they were. It was. It's an NPR style podcast, so it's a uh, like uh, reported audio or recorded field recorded audio interspersed with like host commentary on it. And one of the hosts was doing the interview in the field, and they were doing some editing where all of a sudden, like they they would jump without any transition from field audio to. 
host in studio audio commenting on the the field audio, often the same voice, both interviewing and commenting. And you were meant to make the jump. You know what I mean? You were you were meant to follow. It wasn't alienating. It was it was you know this is supposed to elucidate something like the the to make the jump that like oh at the end of that sentence the field audio ended and even though it's you know the, uh, acoustically the same <laughs> right like this is where the in studio uh, thing begins and whereas like the last sentence was in the moment the next sentence is after the fact and his commentary on on the moment and I like I paused for a second as I was walking Gus and uh, uh, you know, uh, waiting my, my interminable wait for him to poop, um, that, uh, that will occupy the, the rest of the many years that I'm hope we're lucky enough to share together. And I, I paused uh, the podcast and I thought like, wow, that's, am, am I, am I like overselling this or is that just a very sophisticated move that would be the sort of thing that like James Joyce's audience found really alienating, but now it's, you know, we're in this kind of situation of hyper media hyper reality to the point where we're we're not phased by it at all we can kind of like follow those those twisted turns because we're sophisticated about the way uh these things are are produced and so i think yeah i mean i think it does change with sort of media literacy right and like maybe some of my own some of the like the weird twinges that that i you know try not to indulge but like of uncomfortability watching this um thinking like wait, are these people being mocked cruelly? Uh, it's because the contestants on The Bachelor are being mocked cruelly or, you know, by and even with some of the same techniques, right? Ju- juxtaposing audio and video, audio saying one thing and video showing the opposite and you know, like because these these things are supposed to show the, the, the moral failings of the attractive 22-year-olds that they get to compete on The Bachelor, right? Like how, what, uh, what terrible people they are, how, how two-faced or how slutty or how you know whatever bad personality traits they're supposed to have whereas it's it's much much gentler in uh and and so i i associate that with the technique right and i guess i associate that with the format a little bit whereas like i guess if i search my soul i do think it's much much gentler in the christopher guest movies i think he has a much more humane take on people and what they are and i think that like he's he's maybe sort of poking some fun at the at the human condition rather than trying to make someone a bad exemplar you know a bad moral exemplar um Mm -hmm. the the way that happens on reality tv yeah there was definitely i mean to to give some voice to at least one moment apropos of i guess the current situation and rather i i apologize already because the dad stories are going to start coming and they won't stop coming uh fed you the rules and you hit the ground running i don't know exactly how how it works but um but one thing i was thinking about when watching best in show was of course my relationship with my newborn son and i've had a real one of the more difficult things and mark you can confirm for me whether you've had a similar experience one of the more painful things right and it's a venal thing because we're talking about the the foibles that are lampooned in christopher guest movies is that i have in my head the notion that when the baby gets upset i want to be able to like sing a lullaby to the baby and rock the baby and then the baby will be comforted and calmed by my presence and my singing and we'll go back to somebody once told me the world (laughs) world was gonna roll like the the most (laughs) 
and, and, and this was such a piece of my own sort of mythology about this that for, like every day I would lie next to my wife's pregnant belly and sing the Jigglypuff song to the fetus with the hope that when the baby was born, it would recognize the Jigglypuff song. Uh, which, which sounds absurd, but like books tell you that it works. And so now I hold my son and I sing him the Jigglypuff song and it doesn't put him to sleep. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and and one of the things that's been really hard has been, uh, Mark, did you use the, the S's and the, uh, the, the, was it happiest baby on the block methodology um, yeah. to try to, yeah. Well, you want to yeah, yeah, yeah. flesh that out or should I do it real brief? It, it is uh, so far in the recesses of my child, okay. of my infant rearing scarred memory that I think you better do a piece. So the idea, right, is that you and you have a newborn baby, and I'll get to how this has to do with Best Show in just a second. Uh, when you have a newborn baby that gets upset, right, that there's this particular doctor who has this book that a lot of people like, and, you know, when you have a baby, you can look at all the books that everybody likes and determine which one you like and which ones you think are bunk. Uh, this was one that we used that's worked all right for us. And the notion is that the baby... Uh, one of the reasons that a baby gets upset is that it has a bunch of uh, it doesn't have control over its body yet. It's it's born before it's fully able to manage itself as an animal. Right. And and and, and this has to do with its nervous system. Right. It has twitches and reflexes that it can't control. It really wishes that it could be in the womb for an extra three months. But if it did that, its head would be too big to fit outside the birth canal. So. This doctor is, is posited like when a baby gets really agitated and, you, and, is, and is really upset, uh, what you really want to do rather than kind of try to reason with it because it doesn't have the cognitive ability yet to uh, to understand you and to learn in a sort of operant conditioning sort of way. Uh, and this is because, of course, the baby's brain is born a little bit smaller so that the head can fit through the birth canal and then it grows rapidly. Right. Um, in the first few months of life um, is imitate the experience of being in the womb to the baby. And there's a, there's a, there's a four or five step process, whatever, of uh, how to do this. And it involves holding the baby, facing the baby's face away from you so that it isn't being stimulated by looking at your face. Um, and I say it, I mean, you know, in my case, it's him, right? Um, them, you know, this is a person. Um, rock it side to side, but like short distances and kind of rapidly, not shaking it, but kind of like jostling it as if the baby is in inside of a, the uterus of a woman who's walking around uh, and and then shush it, like make white noise in its ear, like even to, a, to the loudest of a vacuum cleaner. Right. Shh, shh. And this is supposed to imitate the flow of blood through the placenta, which was happening right next to the fetus's head before it was born and became a baby. And, and, and you're supposed to, and also you could put your finger in his mouth or give him pacifier or something, uh, for, so you can suck on it. And that, and these all are supposed to trigger reflexes that will help the baby calm, uh, which is good because the things that are upsetting the baby are also reflexes that they have no control over and other sorts of biological facts they have no control over, like that their stomach flap is too weak to hold their bile in their stomach and they get, they spit up all the time. Um, and so the process of like the, uh, the idea behind this is that like when my son is really crying in the crib, it's probably because he's like punched himself in the face for no reason or just because I mean, oh, and swaddle him. That's the other thing is wrap the baby up. 
Uh, we don't have babies sleep on their stomachs anymore because it's dangerous. Uh, it used to help because it w- the baby wouldn't be able to move their arms. But um, nowadays, if you put the baby on their back, they can move their arms. That means that they're because their synapses aren't adequately shielded, their arms kind of twitch and flail all over the place. Don't do that. They don't like that. It doesn't help them go to sleep, right? So you hold the baby, and you're supposed to shush the baby and swaddle the baby, bind the baby up. And if you do all of these things in kind of the right order, it's almost like a switch goes off and the baby kind of gets real quiet because if the baby couldn't do this, the baby wouldn't be able to survive being in the in the uh, uterus in the ninth month. It would it would be like flailing around all the time and it would break its arms. Um, And so but me, you know, the reality of who the baby is. Right. Which is the baby has only a very rudimentary sort of cognitive ability at this point. It is rapidly learning and growing and its brain is growing. But right now it doesn't know who you are. It doesn't even know that different people exist. Right. But you're there and you're like shushing it. Right. And to you, to me, at least right, to stop projecting on it, saying shh, shh to somebody is something that has a signification for me. It's a, it's something that a librarian says to you when they're pissed at you or something passive aggressive. You say to somebody who is irritating you, right? Like it has a meaning to me, but not to the baby. Right. And when I sing the Jigglypuff song or some other lullaby, right. Whether it's like an instrumental version of the Venga boys, like do, 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 do. I might be able to engage the baby and interest the baby if they're awake, but it's not going to help the baby go to sleep uh, in, in necessarily because the baby is going to be stimulated by it. And the and the idea of kind of stimulation and calm that the baby experiences is very different from my notion of familiarity and comfort and love. Right. You're trying to teach the babies these things over the long term. But when they're just born, they don't know any of these things. So basically, this is how dogs work. Right. Like like dogs don't operate on a human level no they, they, do, they do have a nervous people. system that that admits of of operant conditioning but yeah okay. oh no yeah, yeah yeah but what i mean is i don't mean that they're exactly like a baby in the sense that they're constantly punching themselves in the face what are you like what are you saying my precious boy gus is exactly like a baby and he's <laughs> always punching himself and he punches himself in the face so good doesn't he boy I, I think it is very possible to have a relationship with a dog where you do understand the limits of the dog's ability to think but where you also know the dog and have a built a relationship where the dog knows you and you've learned something from each other and you're able to work with them. But the people in Best in Show deal with their dogs the way I deal with my baby, which is that they are projecting onto the thing that can't think, right, <laughs> like uh, like their own feelings that they need to deal with. Right. Like uh, like like if you're if you're yelling at the dog. Right. Because the dog witnessed you having sex. Right. It's not about the dog. The dog doesn't know what human sex is. Right. Like it's not aware of these things. Uh, And even at the end of the movie, when the little pug humps the therapist, there's this joke that the pug knows. Right. That it's being smarmy. Like that the pug understands the significance of what it's doing. Um, the, 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 The poodle doesn't care whether its owners are lesbians or not. Right. Like like it's unaware of it. It doesn't know. And and so when I'm, I'm way I'm bringing this up is that there is a real pathos to that feeling, because if you are trying to talk to a dog in this way and you're trying to deal with a dog with your own stuff in a level of complexity that the dog is like incapable of, of meeting you at even halfway, the dog can't go there with you. It's just a dog. Right. It's a dog. And, and yes, yeah, you can love it and learn from it and play with it, but it can't 
help you with your sexual therapy, right? Like it can't do it. Um, and, and it's like, if you're re- think about the yearning, think about what it is that that person really wants. What is that person really looking for? Right. When they're like reaching out to try to relate to or connect with this dog or like correct the, what they see as the dog's wrong behavior, which is really their own wrong behavior. Right. And I'm like gesturing wildly. There's a real, there's a real sense of loss. Cause it's like, Oh, this is supposed to be my best friend. Right. Like this thing is, is supposed to be this is why I'm devoted. Right. And it's supposed to get me. And it's like, I mean, I don't know, part of part of and in, in, in retrospect, it's like, well, of course, that's not how it works when you're the parent. Right. And you're dealing with a baby or when you're the owner and you're dealing with a dog. It's not the responsibility of the baby or the dog to like play in your life. Right. Like you have to be the person who leads and provides the structure. Right. And like and like they'll catch up. Uh, to the extent that they can, and you'll love them for it. Um, but but that's not. But the people in Best in Show are all a little bit lost, and and they they aren't really in a position to lead their dogs, and uh, instead the dogs kind of they're looking to the dogs to lead them. Um, and I think that there is a sadness and a pathos to that. Uh, that that is that is that is harm. That is ultimately pretty pretty gentle. Gentle is a good word that you used. I use the word venal. I think the word gentle is better. It's sad, right? That that a person could reach out to, uh, you know, that a person can drive alone cross country with a with a with a bloodhound doing a ventriloquist act because they wish that their bloodhound would talk to them, you know, i.e., you know, uh, or e.g. Sven from Frozen, right? <laughs> Wishing that the reindeer could talk to him. So talking through the reindeer, right? Um, there's a peculiar kind of loneliness in that. Uh, and, and, but it's not, it's sad and it's pathos, but it's not the pathos of like, I'm a meth addict who's trying to murder somebody, right? Like, (laughs) (laughs) yes, those things, those things have slightly different valences. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at, which is that like, there is a long way between like Ron Burgundy drinking a half gallon of milk and like taking an assault rifle to a watermelon saying F you Carol Baskin <laughs> like between like total harmlessness, right? Like this idea that the, that the whole idea that this character is suffering is a joke, right? That, that is, that is brought on entirely of his own volition that he can end whenever he wants. Right. And that, that he is just reveling in for your entertainment. And as, and, and is this sort of like, you know, clowning thing that's happening that has that, that the pathos is very, very kid gloves versus like, this is actual real world suffering and potentially mental illness, right? Like, uh, and great sadness uh, of, of a grand, a grand degree to the extent that we watching the show perhaps should get involved, right? Like, and stop it from happening. Parker uh, Posey. <laughs> Parker, po- Parker Posey killed her husband and fed him to the Weimar honor. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, can we please? I mean, I know that it goes to eleven, but you don't have to go to eleven all the time. <laughs> That's the irony, right? Is that like the Spinal Tap guy is the one who understands that more than anyone? No, yeah, no, that you no. Don't have to go to no. It's like it's no, when you, you can go to three. It's great. It's when you need that. It's when you need that. Uh, that extra kick. All right. I think we're going to uh, I think we're going to have to leave our discussion there. Uh, thank you very much for listening. And Pete and Mark, thank you very much. 
much for giving uh, this occasion to watch this this awesome film and to talk about it. It's always a pleasure. And to uh, Mr. Fred Willard, thank you for everything. Godspeed, sir. We'll be back with more Overthinking It podcast next week. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't deserve. Ha 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 ha!